Hey everybody, welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of October 7th, 2022. I'm Charles Hayne, I'm a filmmaker. I am here with filmmaker Gigi Hawkins. Hello there. And filmmaker, producer, and editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. This week, we have two Ask No Film Schools, one of which might be a whopper. But before we get to that, we have to address yet again an HBO show possibly being too dark. And I have some theories as to why. So that is what is up this week on the No Film School podcast. All right, our top story this week, House of the Dragon, the new HBO show, which I watched the first episode of, and I was like, this is good, and then never felt compelled to watch another. Are you guys continuing to watch? Yes, but a a little bit reluctantly because the world feels very small compared to the Game of Thrones world. Um, So I'm sticking with it because I'm hoping that it can expand, but it so far, it, it has not lived up to season one of Game of Thrones. This is I mean, season one of Game of Thrones. You were definitely like, oh, I am part of a vast universe and I am being told this story that is slowly introducing it to me. Yeah, that, that's exactly. Look, I haven't watched any of it. I had no desire to because I felt like basically what Gigi is saying, but I want to break it down more because I, I don't know how many people care about my takes, but I find it interesting. To me, the thing that was so amazing about Game of Thrones. It was well executed, yes. But we were slowly introduced to a massively fleshed out universe. The world building was incredible. And you could feel that just behind every single thing in that pilot and and even in the first few seasons that there was so much more to explore and we were being taken through it, like led through this journey. And I think it goes back to something that I've heard a lot of great storytellers and filmmakers talk about, and it's the old Lucas quote about Star Wars and why when he watched Hidden Fortress, he fell in love with Kurosawa. He was like, I was just thrown in the middle of a world and I didn't know the rules and I didn't know the history. And that transportative quality is amazing. And if you tell me, yeah, we're not really doing that anymore. We're just like a writer's room and a bunch of TV execs and we're trying to riff on the popularity of the first thing. I'm out. Like it just does not like excite me at all because there you can, it's almost like I can feel the walls around that thing. Like there, I could just feel that there's no expanse to it. I can feel that it's based literally based on the success of and not someone spent all this time painstakingly creating some like super dork like me who had the energy and time to create an entire universe. So that's my just like, no, like I was just not into it. And I'm sure people like it. I see the memes. I see people talking about it. Like, but that's why I personally was just like, no, give me the real thing. Like, give me the big expansive world. Well, also to go back to Lucas, you know, one of the common things that comes up about the prequels is like, when you watch the original Star Wars, it is chock full of all this world building that goes nowhere. Like there's references to like back in the Clone Wars and this and that and the other. And like, the beauty of the original A New Hope in 77 is like, they never explained the Clone Wars. It's a big thing that happened and it sounds mysterious and it happened before. And like, it's riffing on the concept of a Western where people are always referencing the Civil War, but you're never really going into it. And then in the prequels, they're like, here's what the Clone Wars are. There was a trade war happening between these people and this was their <laughs> negotiation. And you're like, 
I don't know if you needed to tie that up in a box. <laughs> like maybe you needed some more messy stuff that wasn't so neat and tidy. Because A New Hope is not neat and tidy. It's like you don't exactly. know all of the backstory. It's that and it's all about, it's a macro version. The micro version of it is the get in late, get out early. The macro version is it, it's it's the immediate rest. It's what, however, whatever phraseology or, or rule about writing or whatever you want to go by. It's that idea that less is more and give us a taste. And just like all artifice, like if we look too long at, you know, the structure in the background, we might notice that it's a flat and it's 2D, but you want to build as much as you can like around that. And and literally the prequels were like, okay, you want to see that structure out of focus in the background? Here it is. Now it's in focus, but it's still 2D. <laughs> it's like, no, no, now we need more depth. You need depth beyond that, right? So anyway, that to me is just like, I was like, nah, I'm out. And so I, I'm, you know, like, I, I, maybe it's great. Like, you know, I've heard people say, Jason Hellerman told us on the work Slack for No Film School the other day. He was like, it's actually based on some stuff that GRRM was working on and expanded encyclopedias and whatever. It's like, eh, you know, maybe. I don't know. I judged harshly early and I stand by my judgment. There's not <laughs> enough time like to watch the pilot. Everything. I love me some Patty Considine. I like, I it was not a political or deliberate choice not to keep watching. It was a, there's too much content and I have a four-year-old decision to not keep watching but like your description is accurate to what the pilot felt like it did not have that thing that the original gft pilot had where you were like big world you were like okay i am now going to be dealing because also the other thing the got pilot did is it threw like seven balls up in the air like yes, john aaron is right. dead and there's something and like house of the dragon is very much about dynastic gender power struggles in one family right and there's right. like mm. some other stuff going on but it is one family, but you know, I will say that not this last episode because I haven't watched it yet. But the one before, where they do spoiler a time jump, it felt for the first time that we were getting into the dynamics of multiple families and we were moving outside of just the castle that we had been living in, which is why it felt so stifling. And they did a lot of groundwork, and I understand the stakes, but it feels a bit repetitive, if anything. And to to your both of your points about building a world and throwing us into it, like it goes to show the power of, well, if we care about these characters, we don't necessarily need to know how the world works, but we're there with them and learning along the way. And that's like, it, I think it's scary for a lot of people to trust that the audience will connect dots or fill in blanks or like understand context. But we do that all the time in our life. Like we show up at our partners, families, Thanksgiving, and we don't know that there's tension between the aunt and the uncle, but like we can piece it together. So I think that's kind of what the original Game of Thrones does so well, making, hopefully. I think you're making a great point that even furthers and like elaborates on something like writerly lessons and like what I wish we saw more in movies and TV shows, which is that we are all going to draw connections, even if none exist. So if you're creating something and you even take us halfway there, we will infer so much because our brains are all desperately trying to make narrative meaning constantly out of everything around them. They're like narrative machines. So mm -hmm. if you just kind of put a couple pieces together, we're going to start filling in gaps and being like, oh, I think the blah, 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 blah. Like Charles, you mentioned like John Aaron, like 
they keep talking about things like John Aaron and they kept talking about things like who died when and who loved whom and what happened there. And everybody who was watching was like, what the fuck is going on? And like, and I <laughs> got to go research this John shit Aaron? and we're all going to talk about it. And like, what is the hand of the king and who's that and what happened exactly? And that was its own like water cooler thing was just everybody's desperation to make sense of what they had been taught. And like everybody became a nerd over that. And I just think that's, there's such an invaluable lesson about the power of an audience's imagination and brain that gets disrespected left and right by people thinking they have to spell out the entire equation. You can just put two plus two on the board. You do not have to put equals four. So yeah, I, I we weren't ready to talk House of the Dragon, but there we did. But the real reason we brought up House of the Dragon is we've got another technical issue. So if you guys all remember, in the last season of Game of Thrones, there was an episode that was way too dark, and we talked about it then. And now they have done it again. Twitter is again really upset with an overly dark episode. And everybody's like, you had four years to figure this shit out. What the fuck just happened? And I'm here to lay my current theory, which I'm like 99% so sure. I'm what confident what happened. I feel like so, you, you're going to have the answer. I'm like fairly certain I know what happened, but I'm not 100% certain. So here's the deal. When you color grade a movie or a TV show, you work on a calibrated monitor. But like everybody knows that at home, every professional DP and colors knows at home stuff doesn't always look as good. So usually what you do, and I've, I've had this happen a couple of times where a client's like, let's make this scene darker. Let's make this scene darker. And we're like, all right, we're going to make this scene darker, but I want you to go home and watch it on your TV and on your laptop tonight. And what always happens is they come in the next day and they're like, you know, maybe we should back off a little bit. Like <laughs> maybe we should play it a little safe, make sure we have enough light on their faces so that even on a TV, that's not quite perfect. We can still see it. However, a new thing came out a couple of years ago called HDR high dynamic range and high dynamic range means the range from brightness to darkness on your TV got bigger, which is good. I think High dynamic range, when properly implemented, looks is a way bigger improvement in image quality than the jump from HD to 4K. Like I regularly watch HD stuff on my 4K TV, and it like doesn't look that different than the 4K stuff. Like you can tell if you really look for it, but it's not a huge difference. But holy shit! Like when I watch like Shaun the Sheep or Curse of the Were Rabbit with in in full HDR, it is noticeably different in a way that's like quite refreshing. So there's HDR. The problem is with HDR, there are like nine fucking formats. There's Dolby Vision HDR. There's HDR Plus. There's HDR 10. There's HLG, which is, stands for Hybrid Log Gamma, which is like the broadcast version. And there's all these formats. And what's supposed to happen is your TV is supposed to handshake with the streamer. And a handshake is like a digital term for like when two things communicate what they are. You see this in HDMI all the time. Like if I have HDMI and I plug in my laptop to a TV, there's a moment where they have a handshake and they're communicating what they are to each other. The computer's like, I'm a computer. I can show these resolutions. And the TV's like, I'm a TV. I can take these resolutions. And they're like, oh, here's a, t a resolution we can both use. Let's use it. Because you might be plugging into a 4K TV or a 1080 TV. You, the computer doesn't know. They have to do a handshake to figure it out. There's supposed to be a handshake where the streaming service like analyzes the TV and is like, oh, you show HDR 10 and I can show HDR 10. But not every TV shows every HDR format and not every streamer is set up properly for every HDR format. And if you show an HDR format the wrong way, it looks wicked dark. And mm. my suspicion 
is what happened with this episode because it's also not as many people bitching. And it could just be that the ratings aren't as good as the show as it was the first season. But I actually think it is more that like 25% of people had a TV that was trying to show it in HRG, HDR 10. And instead, HBO was serving up HLG. And because there was a format mismatch, it ended up looking stupid dark. And that is my guess as to what happened here. Because I know people tend to overcorrect from mistakes. So if I'm the DP of a show with that's like Game of Thrones related, you better believe that I am testing every single decision we make in a color suite on a home TV. Like I guarantee you, everybody on the team went home and watched it at night on their home TV and on their home laptop before approving it. They had to have done that after the shit they got at the end of season seven of Game of Thrones. But my guess is that because they're all nerds, like the colorists are nerds, the DPs are nerds, and the executives might not be nerds, but the executives asked the nerds what TVs to buy. They all had TVs that handled the HDR encoding properly. And mm. that is my suspicion, is that they all have LG OLEDs. In fact, I would be willing to bet money every single one of them has an LG OLED. Most colorists I know that's their home TV. And most DPs I know that's their home TV. They all, And then most executives either have... I know like one producer who still has a Panasonic Pro Plasma, which I think is incredibly punk of him, but everybody else has LG OLEDs. So everybody has these like perfect $3,000 home TVs that are capable of showing the HDR right. And I'm, I would bet, I don't know, $10, my reputation as a nerd. I'm not sure what I'm willing to bet, but one of those things. <laughs> my reputation as a nerd. Um, oh, I was, I was throwing this opinion all over Twitter. I've been putting it out there. So yeah, that's, that's what, uh, I've been, that's what I've been laying out. Those are my thoughts. So you think that it, it's sort of like, I'm breaking it down. Like, obviously I'm oversimplifying it. Basically testing on subpar setups as opposed to subpar setups. I would say above par setups. I see. I would say, no, I mean, I mean the, the missing piece would have been testing on subpar setups because mo- many people may have all variants of setups. So if you're only testing on ideal scenarios, then you're never going to see what could be going wrong in someone's house where they didn't set up ideal scenarios. And then I mean, the problem is there's a, there's a chart that goes around the internet of why it's easier to develop for iPhone than it is for Android. And like, it's a fun chart because like if I'm developing for iPhone, there's like eight iPhone or iPad devices from the last six years I have to care about. But if I'm developing for Android, there's like 70 from the last five mm-hmm. years that I have to test on. So that's why it's like, that's why apps often roll out later for Android and that you have less app choice is because developers have so much more testing they have to do to make sure it works on every hardware. So like I know a bunch, you know, famously Bob Dylan used to every mix he would do, he would go listen to it in his truck in the parking lot. And like, I know DPs and colorists. I know a DP who insisted every single job he colored you had to have the calibrated monitor, but you also had to, in the suite, have a shit TV. And it would be like an RCA, like that was 10 years old that you get mm-hmm. at a thrift store. And like, I know color, like, and this was a big DP who shot like Britney Spears videos you have seen. But like, you know, he insisted. He was like, I have to have a shit TV in the setup. Like, I just can't do without it. But even that DP, in today's world, it's like, how many shit TVs can I fit in the room? If I have to have standard definition, and HDR, but I have to have like all five of the HDR formats, right? And I have to have like a live stream to an iPad and I have to have like seven different flavors of H. Like, it's like, it's too much. Like it's, 
like it's not i i'm gonna say i don't blame the house of the dragon people like i think this is just gonna happen and it's never gonna happen when you're in a middle exposure range because you know tv sports and news and everything else is in that middle exposure range so the whole system is built around that middle exposure range. I mean, how many you, times do you go into a household and see a sports mode TV that's ruining the picture of the movies oh my God. Or shows that you're watching? Yes. Oof. Guys, painful. I got to tell you. So I had to like replug in and reconfigure like TV settings. And at some point, the original remote for this TV was like lost. So I only have the ones for the various things. And so it is currently in motion smoothing sports mode, like standard, because it was all reset oh. and I can't get it back. And so I've watched a couple real things that way. And it's so weird. <laughs> like, it I can't looks believe like a soap opera. It does. It's kind of fascinating, though. Like, I mean, it's awful and I hate it. And it's really awful thinking that like this is how so many people experience. But I'm also kind of tickled by how strange it is because I, I've heard, you know, people talked about this. And for those who don't know, we've written on it on a film school a number of times, but it's just that your factory settings are sort of this weird, how do you describe it, Charles? Like it, the motion smoothing, like frame blending. I don't know what it is, but everything <laughs> looks like telenovela basically. Yeah. Except for sports. <laughs> That's what it looks good. Everything else looks weird. Yeah. Oof. Absolutely. It's just like this strange, hyper real, uncomfortable, overly sharp, overly static. Ugh. Ugh. It's yeah. I vote against. I vote anyway, against, not a make fan. Make sure to change it. If you're wondering why all the cinematic television you watch looks like it's shot on an old, weird video, like super smooth, super sharp video camera, then that's not my intention. That's not what they want it to look like. You should change you the settings. You just saved so many, so many lives have been improved by this, this sort of announcement. Yeah. So I mean, many yeah. in-laws. I, I think I think people I'm it's crazy to me that people look at it and are like, huh, that's what it looks like. Okay. Listen, um, we can everyone who's listening, go to your family's homes this Thanksgiving and this for the holidays and go fix this and you will improve everyone's life. That's the PSA of this podcast. Also, if you can fix it in restaurants or bars. <laughs> like I totally was like in the waiting room of an auto shop over the summer. And I was like, I can't, I can't let this be inflicted on everybody. And uh, yeah. All right. Moving on our next question. And I'm going to summarize it. It was a really good one, but it was a little long. So I apologize if this was your question and I'm summarizing, but the question more or less boiled down, boiled down to the question was from William Mabanta. Uh, aspiring storyteller. And the question was more or less, can we improve the superhero movie genre? You know, big time filmmakers are always mocking superhero movies. And like, what are the things that superhero movies are not doing that they could be doing in order to be a, you know, and another level of improvement or iteration on the genre. And I think that's a really good question. I mean, we don't do too much superhero mockery here. And I mean, you know, all of us have superhero movies I think we love, or Gigi, I think, has at least some superhero movies she's seen. But like, I have some affection for some, and I find others really boring, but like, I don't blanket try and trash the whole genre, I think, because, you know, the first Iron Man rocks. I like the first two Nolan Batman movies, even though I disagree with them politically. I think they're like good movies that are wrong about stuff. Um, 
you know. I love The I, Boys, which is a twist on the superhero genre. Yeah. HBO's Watchmen is, I mean, I think the start of the conversation is looking at something like HBO's Watchmen. I love the comic book, The Watchmen, and uh, the movie I was fine with. I don't know why everyone hates it as much as they do. I think it's, it's absolutely fine. And I think some of the things it did, I even kind of liked. It has but, one of the best opening credits. Oh, the opening credit on. sequence in that movie is insanely good. Um, there's so much that is worth study and attention in that movie. I, I do not know why the fans hate it as much as they do. But um, the HBO show is magnificent. And it's magnificent because it tries to continue to use superheroes to reckon with what we want from forces that create order. And, you know, it's amazing because it was made before George Floyd and the BLM protests, but like, it's very clear eyed about what policing means in America. And it starts at the Tulsa riot. And like, it very much tries to reckon with race in America and policing and how it's all tied together. And like the thing I think that keeps the opportunity and challenge for superhero movies is ideally superhero movies are our societal morality plays and myths. Like they should raise to the level of Greek tragic theater where this is where we are playing out our stories of what values we want to perpetuate in our society. And I think it was relatively easy to do that when the enemy was Hitler during the golden age of comic books, because one person could just kill Hitler. And like, it wasn't as easy to do it during the cold war. But like you could still tell stories about one individual taking on like a group of communist spies or whatnot or killing Stalin. Khrushchev wasn't really as juicy a, a target. But, you know, during the Silver Age, there were still like coherent enemies and we could tell morality plays about that. But like in the post-Cold War era, you know, there's been some attempts to like make it about terrorism. And like the first two Nolan movies of the Dark Knight trilogy were very much about like the Patriot Act and like where does where do our obligations and powers end when we have the power to listen and view things like where does it stop where should it stop and like the reason why i think those movies are so interesting is because it really desperately tried to reckon with those questions and i think that's what superhero movies are supposed to be doing but i think as a society we're moving to a place where it is really hard to imagine individuals with powers making dents to the problems that we are reckoning with like you know, the Patriot Act was a fucking huge societal thing. And like dealing with individual terrorists was a thing that like you could tell stories about an individual billionaire vigilante trying to reckon with that damage. But like, you know, the biggest issues we have now, like systemic problems in policing, you know, like I don't know if anybody saw, but like, you know, it just came out the lawyer for the cop who was killed in a training exercise by the LAPD last year, Houston Tapping, oh just announced that yes. the person who was killed was investigating four other officers on a rape charge. So like, was he accidentally killed in training or was that a deliberate use of training to kill a cop who was investigating other cops? And one of the people he was investigating was in the group yeah, that killed him. Like, so. so it's like, is that something go. like, is that something a superhero can deal with or like climate change? Like climate yeah. change is something that's going to involve massive industrial regulatory government action to try and change and correct. And so it, I think the yeah. trouble... When the antagonist is the literal end of the world, but it's happening in slow motion. It doesn't yes. work in superhero time, <laughs> which I think is part of the... I think there needs to be like a rethinking of how to tell these stories because there's obviously... I don't... Have you guys seen The Woman King? Not yet, no. 
It's very, it's, yeah. I think it's not a perfect movie, but I think it's worth seeing in theaters. And what I loved about it is that it threaded the needle of playing in a genre of like a sort of action triumph movie, The Patriot, you know, all these epic, what's the one where they're fighting in Rome? Um, you know what I'm, uh, but, but what I loved about it is that it was, it it was this character driven and story driven thing. And it wasn't trying to like check all the boxes. It wasn't like, this is a gender story. It wasn't that. And I think that it, it just goes to show that you still can tell original stories that feel fresh based on the entry point. And I, I don't know, I don't watch Marvel movies, so I'm not the perfect person to be lamenting about this, but like, I think one of the reasons that the boys work so well is because it is an exploration of the bureaucracy and the power of corporations, but they're using superheroes as a device to amplify it and and magnify it. And I think that's like a very smart way of storytelling versus what they're trying to do. What I see, I think they're trying to do with all the Marvel movies, which is just like rely on these characters you already know. I think you guys have both highlighted a a lot of interesting aspects about the challenges that face people who are trying to make superhero movies dynamic and relevant to our time and layered. And I think that there's other things to discuss. This is a really big topic. And I really love the question coming in because we don't often talk about like, how could something that's like a cultural standard improve? And like for filmmakers and for a filmmaking podcast, it's about education and, and knowledge and growth to discuss like, how do we be the change we want to see in the world? I think that's a really cool idea. Just talking about like, hey, there's this genre out there that is utterly dominant. Its IP is like gold now and it's con- it seems no failure will, sh- will slow its roll. And so like, how do we make it like great? And I think that's just such a great way of looking at it because people like me, there's lots of us who would be like, I don't want them anymore. I'm done with them. They suck. Mm-hmm. I'm t- it's tired. <laughs> like, And I'm not saying I hate them all. I love some superhero movies. But I think there's an easy way to be jaded and bitter instead of to take the approach of like, is there a way to do something really yeah. interesting and powerful with this? And I think that you guys both talked about great ways to approach that and ways it's been done. My instinct... And one of the things that's attracted me most is that I, Charles alluded to the idea of the morality play, Greek tragedy, you know, superheroes are as old as story themselves. The Epic of Gilgamesh, which is the first, uh, you know, pen to page or not pen, but whatever, uh, story, the Iliad, all that stuff, superhero stories, all of it. Westerns, superhero stories. For a long time, cop shows, superhero stories. Like it's all, you could boil it all down. I think there's a couple ways that you can look at the problem that a lot of them have if you were diagnosing it, in my opinion. One of them is that at some point, and there became a, a cultural obsession within the industry with the idea of characters who are flawed. So like, it was like, well, Superman's impossible to write. You hear that a lot because he's boring. Yeah. He just wins. And Batman's great because he's conflicted. 
And one of the reasons that the X-Men worked or that Spider-Man works is because they are naturally conflicted. And in, in the old days, in the golden age of comics, I guess in the silver age, like Charles also alluded to, DC was kind of king because it was all about the straightforward, like who's going to beat, and I, I know Batman is DC, but bear with me, like Superman is perfect. He's the ideal. And he's going to take down these pure villains out in the world as opposed to what we saw in cinema, which was the inverse where it was like Marvel is the best because everybody in Marvel is subversive and struggling. So I kind of think that the idea that you can't do a good job with a Superman is a misunderstanding of the core of some of our storytelling and our mythology and myth-making. Sometimes the, the dynamic and the narrative doesn't need to be drawn from an internal conflict. It can come more powerfully from an external conflict. And when you have things that are like major villains and catastrophic events, you don't really need your hero to be going through something intense internally. And Superman can go through internal things. And he does in the first very good Superman, Richard Donner Superman movie. I know that's not the first ever, but it's the modern first. And then there's other versions where you can sort of do what the Western did when it became kind of familiarized, which is the end of the West Western. And you do, there are the Wild Bunches and the Butch Cassidy's, which this is my personal favorite superhero movie is Logan, because I think it took the idea of the superhero genre to a natural end point that did more of an unforgiven Wild Bunch, Butch Cassidy, end of the West, like, hey, it's the last roundup and this is about tragedy. And there's, a lot of depth and sadness and humanity in that movie that I think just speaks to what you can do in anything. And again, I don't really think, I know there's something there. I know Wolverine's going through stuff about the girl or whatever, but it's not what makes the movie tick. Like sometimes it's not that internal thing that makes a movie tick. It's their, it's a character's relationship to the bigger world some things they can and can't do anything about. And I think that we, we as kind of a culture, we continually ignore the ideas. Superheroes are big. It's big stories and big forces. And if we focus so much on what's happening inside them, like I feel weird about <laughs> myself. Like, I think we lose a little bit about the potential of them addressing massive external forces. So I, I think there's a lot to explore. I don't think the genre is done. <laughs> and I just, it saddens me every time I see something come along where I'm just like, yeah, I just feel like this is another, I, I just feel like they're not exploring anything interesting here. I want to go back to something, Gigi said something really interesting where she talked about stakes versus time, because the interesting thing about climate change is for the second time in human history, we actually have something where the stakes make sense for a superhero movie, right? Like until we invented the atom bomb, we never had the power to end our species. Mm -hmm. Then we invented a bomb that could end our species if we used it wrong. And now with climate change, we have another thing we've done that could end our species. And so, like, it's the second story we have that's truly world-ending stakes. Like, in 1850, there were no world-ending stakes. Like, the biggest stakes you could come up with are like, I'm going to wreck this train, which is, like, still stakes. Like, 100 <laughs> people could die. But it's not like, I'm going to end humanity by crashing this train into this other train. And to, as an aside, there used to be recreational train wrecks. Like they used to be like, we're going to crash these two what? trains into each other and set up bleachers so people could watch because the 19th century. That does fucking, sound very 19th century. I would totally go though. But, you know, so we have this story, but the problem with the story is that it's on a 50 year timescale. Mm -hmm. So like, I would really love to see a movie in which one of the superheroes, like, could we, could we tell a 50 year superhero story about the battle to fight against climate change? 
Is there a way to conceive of like a superhero whose power has to do with accelerating time yeah, or slowing time cool. and like a 90 minute story over 50 years of climate change battle? I would be interested to see how that would work in a way that was like mainstream and not arty. That, I mean, that's a cool concept. Like this person is operates in fast forward time. And so he's or she is seeing climate change as if it were in real time. And then every time he stops moving, it's like a hundred years into the future. It'd be a, yeah, I think the a I think the idea of addressing, like you said, like the major, major issues that no individual has the power to address is exactly why we have these kinds of characters. Mm-hmm. And I remember once having a mythology professor say that it, it, you know, part of what catharsis is is not just the concept behind it is that we're really these characters are the human experience on a test drive or like in a as a crash test dummy. Like we're putting them through extremes of what can be endured, of what can be solved, of what can be experienced and that stuff we can't do, but the but the magic of narrative allows us to connect all these dots that we can never otherwise connect and relate to. So if you're talking about, you know, how do we solve unsolvable problems or what does it feel like to face those odds? Like, I don't know. For me, sometimes, like you talked about villains and like is climate change as a villain, the atom bomb as a villain, these kind of embody, and we talked about Game of Thrones earlier. So much of the strength of something rides on its villain or its antagonist, or its forces of antagonism. It doesn't necessarily have to be Hans Gruber, although he's great. Like It doesn't have to be a mustache-twirling baddie. It can also be a thing that seems insurmountable and unstoppable to any of us. And that is a form of, you know... like Like, if you address climate change that way, through metaphor, less in the way that that Netflix movie did, <laughs> which felt more like, like a kind of almost apathetic and and finger pointing way of addressing the concept like that to me is just so powerful and and I think that that's the whole point of the genre as it exists is to take us through that sort of stuff so and, there's 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 room to do stuff and frankly like i I watched the pilot for dope sick yesterday, which is about the opioid crisis, and they did such a good job laying the groundwork of the the world and doing world building, but establishing the stakes. But also the Sackler family feels like comic book bad guys. Like they are almost like cliche in that way that could you could easily insert some kind of super element to a story like that. And I think the um it's it's the tool that the um that the anta- forces of antagonism are using, whether it's climate change and and if an antagonist is a, a greedy corporation, I, it does feel like there's something there, and and the stakes are are there. Um, it's just about you know what is the way that that story is told, and how do you sort of hold the audience's hand to a certain extent, but also trust that, like we said before, that they'll fill in the gap that this is bad and that we need our superhero to come in and save the day and give us hope and show us how we can affect change. I mean, if anything, it's, it's really important that we have these stories that show us how to tackle these big ideas, these big threats. So go see Black Adam. (laughs) (laughs) No, we're not. (laughs) We're not talking about any particular individual 
superhero movie, but just the concept of Yeah, just like what are we trying to do with them as a society and what values do we want them to replicate for the future? And what and what can we? Yeah, what can we do? What can we explore? Yeah, I mean, for me, I think the the big lesson of my lifetime is that groups can accomplish more than individuals and that our focus on individual action to create change is counter to the idea of working collaboratively with others to make change. And I think the big problem with superheroes is even superhero groups are usually not, not about actual teamwork. They're about a bunch of individual coordinated achievements. Like you, you go out and Hulk will tear down that building. And then totally. that yeah. and it's like, you know, the much harder story to tell narrative structure is about individuals and actual human change is about groups and institutions. And that's hard as shit to, you know, there are movies that do it. There are TV shows that do it. The bear, I think does it beautifully where it's about the group at the restaurant in a really successful, wonderful moving way. Um, I would like to see the team behind the bear do a superhero show, but we'll, we'll see if that happens. Hopefully we just get a bear season two. Moving on from that. We have another question, which is Gigi Hawkins asks, <laughs> Film sets are full of garbage food and long hours. What do you do to stay healthy living a film life? Is that an accurate version of the question? Even better than than what I asked. That is that is the that is what I meant to ask. So I'm gonna kick off by saying that famously, Gordon Willis always brought his food from home. He would always show up on a set, his wife had packed him a lunch, and he always, even though film sets are mostly catered and there's craft service. He would eat lunch from his briefcase every day. And that's Gordon Willis, which I think is like incredibly punk. Gordon Willis rules in so many ways. And the idea this, yeah, he would just like go at lunch, avoid the crafty table and like go get a sandwich from his briefcase that his wife packed for him is like awesome. So uh, I honestly, I, I hate to say this because in my 20s, there was a time where I was like, oh, it is so great. I'm getting fed on set because that saves me money that I don't have to spend on food at home. Mm-hmm. And like, that was a huge perk for a large part of my twenties was like, oh, well, the day rate's not great, but there'll be food. But the problem is, is like crafty is garbage. You know, it's a giant table of grazing snacks, all of which are just like pure carbs. And then on a better job, you're getting better catered meals, but on the not better jobs, you're not. Mm-hmm. And it's really like, it's incredibly difficult to eat in a way that feels healthy and good and feel say like feel sane on a film set. So the the thing I started doing towards the end of my years of full-time film set work were I would bring my lunch. Um, so I wouldn't be dependent on like, what did they randomly happen to get that day? And then like, you know, I'd bring like a rice and beans, like instant cooker thing from home or whatever. And then I started using like, because I brought my lunch and I didn't have to wait in the cater line to get through the line for food. I would eat my lunch and then I'd take a 20 minute nap. Uh. And that was like my thing so that I wouldn't have my afternoon dip. So I'd like eat a lunch, drink a coffee, and I would take the nap before the coffee kicked in. And I tell you what, that shit worked wonders. Where would you nap? In your car? Uh, I mean, I lived in LA at the time, so I had my car and I would just sleep in the backseat of the car. This is such a good, like, yeah, that's such a good call. Such good advice. Using a lunch break for a quick nap, I highly, highly uh, support. (laughs) Um, I, I think that this is a tough one and a good question. And it's just so hard to take care of yourself period 
but to add in the challenging hours, the food available, the way that we have the emotional relationship we have, all of us to food is yeah. unique and complicated and psychological and cultural. I stress and so, eat, which is part of the reason I asked this, because I'll be like tired and then I will go for the cookie at Crafty. Exactly. That there's a, there's a spike sometimes in mood. There's a reward center in your brain that's that's activated. There's a, I earned this. There's a, I'm tired. There's a, I haven't eaten anything all day, so I'll just eat a ton here. Then my everything spikes and then crashes. And then I'm exhausted. Like there's so much going on here and it's so hard to do it right. And I don't have a hack or a trick like Charles does, but I think that the most important thing to try and do if you're a producer or you have any say on what happens on production is to come up with a, at least think about not the cheapest, most, mm-hmm. you know, the joke of pizza, but like to just try to have options, things that are light, things that are satiating, that fill you up, that aren't high sugar, complex carbs, like vegetables. Like if there's a vegetable tray that gives people something to constantly eat that isn't going to, because people stress eat or want something to chew on or want something to do. I think that's kind of like the thing of the the LaCroix culture mm-hmm. <laughs> or water bottle cult of just like, I got to get a thing, open a thing, take a sip, put it down. Because yeah. it's partly the act. It's partly why for many of us way back when, probably less of us now, unless you're a grip, no offense grips, but like smoking on set, it was a thing because it was just like break equals thing. Like yeah. instant gratification on my break. I do this little thing. It gives me a little like hot. It gives me like a little something like, and that, something sustains and coffee is another one, but there's a crash there too. So I think the first step is to acknowledge the power of all these elements that are at play. Cause it's weird that we're talking just like crafty and eating on set. But I, I really think it's a big thing because to stay sharp, like you have to think you have to have like this awareness of like, how am I going to feel if I eat like three cookies right now mm-hmm. in 20 minutes? And I think Charles's thing of like, try to eat something and get a nap in because a lot of times food will crash you. Like your body has to get the foods broken down. So that's going to take blood out of your brain yeah. <laughs> on the most bi- on base, bio, whatever level. So there's a lot there. I mean, for me, one thing I used to do a lot, which is dumb, is I would just not eat much and I would just coffee, coffee, coffee. Ooh. And then I would eat a lot when I got home and crash. That's not a healthy way to live. That's but everybody's different. Intermittent fasting. Yeah, I, was, I mean, I was just like, I know if I eat, I'm gonna crash. So I'm gonna try to delay myself until I can crash, and that I eat a lot and crash. That was my strategy. But I don't know what I would do now. I would probably lean towards the bringing something that I could have that would that would sustain me. And like when we do stuff like NAB. Actually, now that I think about the production situations I'm in now, where you're like on your feet all day and you're moving around least most recently for no film school with NAB. Yeah, I kind of stick to fruit and vegetables during, and then I eat more at the end of the day. So I kind of stick to my old thing, a lot of caffeine and water, and then fruits and vegetables. And then at the end of the day, I eat a significant amount and go to sleep. <laughs> so in terms of things you can bring, here's some things I discovered over my years on set. Because again, the main thing, George is right. You're going to snack, especially like my thing is always, I would not snack for the first half of the day, mm-hmm. but then once I'd had lunch, it was hard not to snack you in the second the half of the day. Like once once broke I broke the, the seal. seal. So I always tried to bring stuff with me. So in terms of a meal, I would do like an instant pot, like 
literally you can throw the rice and the beans and the steak all together in an instant pot and cook it for 20 minutes. And like, it's not pretty, but it's tasty. It sounds delicious. I'm yeah, so hungry it's like now. totally deli- <laughs> like, and it's like it's dry beans, it's dry rice. I I throw the steak in frozen. I don't even defrost the fucking steak. I throw the steak, the rice, and the beans in an instant pot. I cook it for twenty minutes on high. I throw it in a little like um, Pyrex container, and you can just like eat it. You can eat it cold. You can eat it hot. On a nicer set, you'll have a toaster oven. So that, and then if you do eat meat, jerky or and if you're in LA, biltong. Biltong is South African beef jerky. It is like a, a juicier beef jerky. There's a great place called the German Butcher Shop in Beverly Hills, but it's not like fancy Beverly Hills. It's South Beverly Hills where like actual places are. So it's not like a frou-frou place. It's like a German butcher shop from the 70s that just happened to be in Beverly Hills. Uh-huh. And it's really good. They sell amazing biltong. Uh, it comes in a paper bag and you just keep it stored in a paper bag so it breathes. And I used to like go there once a week or once every other week and take biltong to set to snack on. Because meat, I find, digests slower, so I don't get those sugar spikes. Mm. For NAB, when I do that, I use Epic Bars. And then if you're vegetarian or if you just want to not eat nothing but meat all day because you're not insane, (laughs) sliced red peppers, people will look at you like you're fucking nuts. But like, it's actually a completely tasty, satisfying snack. It's not like, like, I, I was ever one of those people who could eat like uncooked broccoli. Like, I need to cook my broccoli and put some butter and some salt on it. But like, Uncooked sliced red peppers. I would bring a bag of that to set every day. And once, yeah. And it's like, that is like, you get a crunchy snack that's satisfying without having to go hit the pretzels or whatever carby thing is at the table that's going to make you feel all faint. There are a billion reasons why sets are unhealthy. And the hours and the food situation is one of them. Because, you know, you wouldn't, we wouldn't have this problem if the hours were reasonable. If we were leaving after 10 hours, it'd be way easier not to snack because you'd know you're going home for right. a healthy meal or you're meeting friends at a good restaurant. But that because you're is on a whole, set, Yes, that is a whole other thing, which is that sometimes your options before you're going to sleep are so limited that it's going to be the quickest, worst thing. And so much of what we're talking about, like Charles, you're talking about when you talk about the meat, rice, and beans thing, it's like, you're like basic macros, basically, or like you're talking about just eating vegetables. Like if you're eating raw carrots or raw red peppers or fruit, like these things are going to fill you up, but they're not going to spike your blood sugar. So it's going to be like more bang for your buck. You're going to get more like, it's just easier for you to get the nutrients out of it. And like, there's a whole thing about how those kinds of choices, like whole foods are going to be better for you anyway. But if you're eating something processed, like you bring ramen, which seems fine, right? But like there's, or like you just eat a sandwich even like with the bread, like there's all kinds of ways and everybody's body is different. So you should probably all, everyone should experiment with what keeps them full and energetic longer and what crashes them. Some people really don't like beef and it doesn't agree with them. So you never know, like, but I think that it's smart to experiment with things and kind of use some of Charles's recipes here as a starting off point. And then figure out how you can get through the whole day without eating just the Welch's fruit snacks or whatever, or the pretzels. Like, I, think I know okay. some producers who try and provide better food, but the problem for me is that that table with better food on it is also going to have garbage food. Mm-hmm. And I am not strong enough. If I am at a table that's my problem and there is some too. delicious garbage that's going to make me sleepy and there are those red peppers, yeah. I'm going to eat the delicious motherfucking garbage. I am like, I just know myself. So it is better for me to have my snack in my bag and not go to the table. 
I do not go. Uh, what's that old expression that's probably offensive now? But like, you don't go to the whorehouse to play to listen to the piano. Like, I don't go to the craft <laughs> service table to get carrots and peppers. If I'm at the craft service table, I'm getting a bag of Skittles. So I just don't go to the craft service table. I avoid it because I know when I am there, I will it's be a weak. dangerous, dangerous place. Yeah. yeah, it's very hard to keep you. That's why I was sort of mentioning like the awareness. It's it's really hard to break through the messaging that comes through your brain when you're by the table and you see things that look good and you're hungry and you deserve it. Yeah. You're tired. You're yeah. hungry. It's unhappy. You're stressed out. Like it's not fair to ask yourself to have the presence of mind or awareness to be like, how will I feel tonight if I eat this one cookie? You'll be like, it's one cookie. Fuck it. Like, and so that's why I kind of think Charles is right. If you can create some rules for yourself about just like, here's where my food is. This is how I'm going to approach this. Like, yeah, strategies. Um, yeah, I'm not going to see the Skittles. I'm not going to smell the Skittles. I'm not going to like. <laughs> okay, so we know like. you love Skittles. No, this is so helpful. And I think it kind of, it's so easy to forget this type of self-care buzzword uh, mm. when you're on set. But like, especially... If you're, if it's not like a one-off short that you're working on or a day gig, like you really have to take care of yourself because it, it can, you can get sick, you can get hurt. You need to like be aware of this stuff. And, and it's so, I am the first to admit I am the, I'm a, a sugar queen. I have a sweet tooth. It is um, a dangerous, I am also, don't put it in front of me or else I'll eat it. Don't have it in the house or else I'll, I will eat it. Um, but I also. So, what's your strategy to date? Like, what do you do? Like, you brought it up, but how have you been handling it, or what have you been experiencing? Well, I've been on both sides because I have um, both been a uh, person who's providing the food and a person who is eating the food. Um, <laughs> when I am in the latter situation, I actually really value giving my team great meals, uh, healthy meals, and investing in the food because. I think it helps with morale. It helps with performance. When we shot uh, up in upstate New York for a week, we hired, uh, well, we hired two people. And then my my great roommate, Carrie Ann, like ended up cooking like all these meals for a whole week for everyone. And we ate deliciously. And I think it was part of the reason that the that every the morale was so high throughout the week, even when it got hard. On the flip side, I think historically, if I'm on set, I, uh, you know, my eyes are bigger than my stomach and I'm like, I have food FOMO, which is a, a big issue, a fear of missing out on delicious flavor. Um, so mm. one of the things I do with like lunch or breakfast is if I want to try something that I'll, I'll do the healthy stuff and then I'll get a little bit of the delicious stuff. Like I will eat cake at lunch, but I will subsidize it with vegetables. Um, and then the other thing is, I mean, again, this is kind of why I brought it up because I don't have the self-control that I wish I had. And, um, I think, you know, in, in the future, I'm manifesting it when I'm show running my show and directing all these episodes. Um, I will have all the decisions already made for me. And so it kind of takes out the, the, the temptation because it'll be like, well, I'm just going to have this this thing. And that's kind of what I've been doing now that I'm like going back into writing mode. I've taken a lot of um the variation out and just like I have the same smoothie every morning. 
And then I actually, on the, this is getting real deep, but I do find a lot of joy in cooking these days because it's a project that you can start. We talked about this before, that you start and finish and enjoy, and then it's gone forever. So I I think I'm putting more, much more of my energy and into valuing food um, offset so I can just be very streamlined when I'm on set. I mean, I also, I have to say on the flip side, I get it. Like I'm when I'm working on a low budget job, like, you know, I understand why you have that garbage food that? because it's way cheaper. Yeah. Like it just is. Like when I'm producing, I always try and deliver the best possible food I can. But like you look at where your budget goes when buying the good stuff that like has a healthy, happy crew. And like, you should always spend your money there when you can, but I totally can't fault productions for having a whole table of hot garbage at crafty. It's all, it's all complicated for me. It's all about accepting that my brain is part of my body. Like onset, your job is decisions, unless you're like grip, in which case it's half decisions and half lifting art department. But like, if you're ahead of any department, it's not about what you're physically doing with your body in except for camera operating. It's about choices you're making. And like, my body needs to feel a certain way. So my brain is set up to be making the best choices I possibly can. And I always try and remind myself of that, but I also try and like minimize the number of choices I have to make. So like, I never go to craft service. That's a decision. I brought food from home. I'm not even like, I don't have to repeatedly make the choice eight times in the day. I know what I'm eating. I made that choice in the morning because you also, you have decision fatigue on a set. Like decision fatigue is a real thing where your brain is like, I've made 70 decisions today. I'm tired of making decisions. And it's like, I I would like to dedicate all of my decisions to creative decisions about what's happening in front of the camera, as opposed to decisions about what I am doing with my body. So like, I have more or less a set uniform at this point where like, you know, unless it's like a special day when like, oh, my wife and my kid might stop by and maybe I'll dress nice or whatever. Like for the most part, I'm wearing basically the same thing, a J crew, denim, button up and Carhartts. And I, I have many of each so that I'm not dirty, but like, I don't want to think about what I'm wearing to set that day. Like it's another decision that I would rather focus on what's happening in front of the camera. Yeah. I think that brain is part of your body is a really good mantra that like eating is not just like, it's related to how you're going to be able to think. If you think about it that way, you will probably make better choices. All right. That is another week at the No Film School podcast. We solved the drama of superhero movies. We solved how you guys should enjoy life on set. We solved HBO's dark episode problem. I would say that that's a triple win this week for the No Film School podcast team, solving all your problems. Bring us more problems next week for us to continue to solve them. This sounds like a local news promotion thing. Seven on your side. No film school on your side. No film school on your side. Man, we're getting so many good t-shirt ideas right yeah. now. Um, no. Yeah. All right. I'm going to set up the tea public. We're going to sell some t-shirts. <laughs> I, I would wear a no film school on your side or the no cast on your side. I'm on the internet at Charles Hayne. I always say I do YouTube stuff, but I posted two YouTube videos this week um, playing with some Godox tubes and then playing with something else. I can't even remember the other video. I'm doing more youtube stuff. I might do some story YouTube stuff. And uh, I'm just trying to, in general, enjoy the space. So that's where I am. Or you can find me spewing bike shit on Twitter. <laughs> I'm at Lost in Graceland on most of the social media, on all the social medias. And at ggihawkins.com. Every single one. You're on, what was the one that tried to be Facebook? Ello? E-L-L-O? Uh, honestly, I think I I did sign up for that. But did they Truth let... social? Is that the... <laughs> Gab? Is that the Trump one? <laughs> 
<laughs> lost at Graceland on Gab? Um, lost in Graceland, but I actually don't know what Gab is. Is that well, the I'm gonna Trump go one? Sign, I'm going to go get that handle on no. Gab and you're going to have to buy it from me. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm, Gab is the Nazi Gentleman. one, so I think oh, you're probably God. fine not to be on Gab. Oh, okay. Yikes. Yeah, that's good. What about Discord? I don't even know how Discord works. I guys. am that I'm on Discord. So. Okay. Um, I've just heard people talk about it. Apparently, it's good for gaming and stuff. Anyway, I'm at George Edelman, most places on the internet. And you can find everything we talked about and more today on nofilmschool.com. You can follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook. Of course, it's at nofilmschool. Check us out on YouTube. These podcasts will be coming to YouTube soon. Many of them, all of them. It's very exciting. You'll actually see us for better or for worse in some cases. It's on some days, both. Who knows? <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, check out the check out the website and be sure to send more questions, comments, whatever you got to editor at nofilmschool.com because that's how, like Charles said, we keep solving all the problems of the filmmaker world one episode at a time. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>